1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the latest emergency Brexit summit in Brussels, the semi-long delay till October, and where this leaves the Prime Minister. Plus, we'll be digging into how and if the Tory party can appeal to younger people, i.e., those under 50. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief, Alex Barker, columnist, Robert Shrimsley, and Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like a good, positive review. While Brexit remained in stalemate in Westminster, Theresa May hopped on the Eurostar for yet another summit and she came back with yet another extension. The Prime Minister wanted to delay Brexit until the end of June, while some EU leaders wanted it to be over a year. In the end, the delay came out as october the thirty first, so the new crunch date for Brexit is Halloween. Meanwhile, where has this left the state of talks? What's Brexit going to look like and what is going to happen next? So George Parker, let's begin with the summit. You were there, as was Alex, who's joining us on the line from Brussels. This was a summit that was called as a result of the fact Theresa May could not get her Brexit deal through the House of Commons. She's tried three times to get it through. MPs have rejected it with big defeats, although those defeats are gradually getting smaller. And we were set to leave the EU today. This was meant to be the new Brexit day, Friday the 12th of April. But Mrs May had said... I don't want a no deal Brexit. And the EU concluded it didn't really want a no deal Brexit either. So that can has been kicked down the road once more.
2: Yes, I mean, the one good thing you could say about Theresa May's handling of this summit is it's far better than the one back in the middle of March, where she landed the EU with her request for a delay at the last minute. The meeting was really bad tempered. She was locked outside the room having her dinner on a tray while the rest of the European Union discussed a short extension until April the 12th. At least this time, she got the groundwork in. She met European leaders before the summit, sent a letter to Donald Tusk in good time. As you say, she requested a, an extension until June the 30th. But in the end, I think she accepted that. She probably rather wished that she was going to have forced upon her a longer extension as a way of trying to keep pressure on the skeptics. And in the end, we ended up with this halfway house of october the 31st neither short nor especially long but nevertheless the whole summit was another humiliation for Theresa may she said she wanted us out by march 29th now we could be there till halloween Uh, she said we wouldn't take part in european elections it's now quite possible we will have to take part in them
1: And we should point out that Theresa May was playing party politics once again because the EU had made it so clear that any extension was probably going to be long because they don't want to keep having to come back and come back for more of these emergency summits, distracting from the other issues facing the EU. So she'd asked for this June the 30th, but nobody really expected that to happen. And she was, again, trying to get it forced on her, which might help her with keeping US sceptics happy, but doesn't really help with her relations with the EU twenty seven. Well, that's right. There was party management at stake here because, of course,
2: a large section of her Conservative Party had voted against even a short extension, including a number of cabinet ministers who'd abstained on a vote the previous week. So there was a lot at stake. So she couldn't be going in asking to push Brexit back until the end of 2019 or even into 2020. But in the end, having a longer delay probably suits her purposes because it means we end up
1: at least having a bit of stability over the next few months. So Alex Barker, take us into that summit. You've covered countless summits where the EU leaders have gathered to discuss Brexit with a heavy sigh. What were the dynamics in this particular meeting and how did we end up with October the 31st as the compromise date? Because there was far from unity that that was the right course of action.
3: That's right. And at the heart of it really is this inability that Theresa May had to explained that a long extension might actually be in her interests if she wants to encourage Brexters to vote for this because they don't see the possibility of a no deal being there. So it was a more traditional summit in the sense that you had two entrenched positions. The last time they talked about an extension, it was freewheeling. It wasn't very heavily prepared. A lot was left up to leaders. And they emerged with something that was unexpected, but people thought was pretty smart. This time you had a French president who was convinced that a short extension was in the EU's interest, that this would be the thing that put the pressure on the UK, that forced a choice, and who had reservations about the UK participating in European elections and staying in the EU and kind of hindering the ability of the 27 to move on. And on the other side were the vast majority of the leaders and Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, who wanted to see this off their plates for the next few months who didn't want to be coming back every couple of months to talk about whether to extend or not, and were keen to see it go nine months a year, so that the responsibility for this was really on the shoulders of the UK to resolve in its own time. And it was probably one of the most kind of sustained Debates between the French and Germans in a summit that I've seen in a long time, and where the stakes are so high and the differences of view are so marked, because usually they keep this behind the scenes. They work out an approach before they come to the summit table. Of course, there are always big differences between France and Germany. But the way this played out was unusual. And Emmanuel Macron stood firm, ended up compromising. They had a middle ground solution. But I haven't seen the kind of hostility towards a French president at a summit like this in my time in Brussels.
1: And I'm sure for wider EU politics, that's going to have implications for elections and dynamics when the new European Parliament and the new Commission forms later this year. Do you think it's fair to say, Alex, based on what we saw at this summit, that the EU really doesn't want to do a no-deal Brexit? Because I think Theresa May has concluded in her own head she's not going to do that because she thinks it would be too damaging to the Union. It would see Scotland and Northern Ireland end a breakaway. The economic catastrophe it would cause would be great for the Conservative Party. So from the UK side, I think that's what we've landed on from here. But the result from this summit was the EU is not willing to actually just say, you know what, we've given you so many opportunities to resolve this, you just need to get out now. Do you think that that will never happen.
3: Of course, an orderly exit is what everyone wants here. I think they see the question a bit differently, though. When they're thinking about extensions, it's as much about how, as Angela Merkel was arguing, how history would see this, to ensure that their hands were not bloodied by a kind of standoff with the UK that ended very badly and soured relations for a very long time, where the, the EU was seen as having pulled the cord that brought this all to an end. So I think the side that wanted to take it longer to show more patience, of course, they don't want no deal. But I think that the politics around that was not so much a kind of raw calculation about the economic costs or whatever. There was a bigger strategic consideration. And ultimately, the two sides looked at the Brexit situation and came to different conclusions about whether they would be happy to see the UK continue as an EU member state because it might be a slim chance, but clearly the potential is there that Brexit will never happen. And I think the long and short camps were also a proxy for those who want to see the EU move on without Britain now and those who would be quite happy to see Brexit reversed.
1: Well, George, that nicely brings us on to how this thing landed in Westminster, because when Theresa May had that epic seven-hour cabinet meeting, which I think was only a week ago, but it feels like quite a lot longer um, given the state of current events, that she managed to get agreement from her cabinet for a short extension, not a long extension. There were notable Eurosceptics, such as the leader of the House, Andrea Leadsom, even the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, who were dead set against a long extension, the idea that it would go into 2020 or even the end of this year. But what I thought was very striking this week was that Theresa May came back with an extension that was quite a lot longer than she had promised her cabinet and had promised MPs but it was taking it all the way through to the autumn yet no resignations and no real anger from the Conservative Party people feel so worn down by this thing now that they have sort of couldn't find it within themselves to really get angry about it <laughs> well it was a sort of muted anger I think you saw in the House of Commons
2: so just take you on from the, the summit Theresa May had a press conference at three o'clock on Thursday morning and then was back in the House of Commons at lunchtime the same day to make a statement. And as you say, you would have expected there to be an outpouring of Eurosceptic angst about that because she'd said there was no way that as Prime Minister she could accept an extension beyond June the 30th, which of course she'd just signed up to. And you had veteran Eurosceptics like Bill Cash calling for her resignation, saying so it was an abject surrender. But you could tell that the passion wasn't really there because we've been through three months of unprecedented, in my view, political attritional warfare on Brexit and people are exhausted on all sides and not least the Prime Minister. So I think it was partly the sort of sense that an Easter break was finally coming into view for people and their heart wasn't really in it. But I think it's only a bust up with a Tory party deferred rather than cancelled because what Conservative... Eurosceptics say, ministers and backbenchers is that there are two big rendezvous with the public coming up. There's the local elections on May the 2nd where the Conservative Party will be fighting in their own shire heartlands and you can expect a pretty bad set of results and very negative feedback coming back from the doorstep. And then, of course, on May the 23rd, if Britain participates in the European elections, again, another wipeout for the Conservative Party. And I think it's at that point
1: that Theresa May will feel the real force of the backlash of the extension she agreed in Brussels. Because on those two campaigns, we got the briefing from Lord Hayward, who's a long term analyst of local elections. And he took us through the numbers this week, George. And when you looked at them, they're talking big defeats here, that they're going to lose possibly three figures, four figures of council seats, plus lose control of scores of councils. Places like Peterborough that are a sort of very key Tory council might go over to Labour control. There's also even Lib Dem seats in places like Bath and North East Somerset, Jacob Rees-Mogg's Heartland that might go over to the Liberal Democrats. And that's because when you look at the last cycle back in 2015, that was Pete Cameron in a way. That was when the modernisation project was at its zenith. They were gobbling up votes from Liberal Democrats. They were taking Remain metropolitan votes and they'd promised the referendum. So that was when the Tory coalition was at its widest. Now it's narrowed so much that you can only see bad things coming from there. Plus, the anger that you've seen about European Parliament elections is quite extraordinary, that you've seen Conservative MPs saying, let's just not bother campaigning, let's run paper candidates or not run at all. And of course, at the back of that, we've seen, as we're recording today, the launch of the new Brexit party by Nigel Farage.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not just the arithmetic, which looks pretty daunting, as you say, for the Conservatives, because they are dis- defending seats in their heartlands on a very high watermark from last time, as you say. But it's more the mood coming back. And when you bear in mind that people going out knocking on doors for the Conservative Party tend to be older people, tend to be Eurosceptic, tend to be extremely disillusioned with the way that Theresa May is handling the Brexit negotiations – there will be a torrent of anger coming back to central office, reporting back, not just from what the voters are saying, but what party activists are saying from councillors who've lost their seats and their position in the local authority and in the local community who will be furious. You know. So that will be feeding back. And then three weeks after that, to ask the party to get up off its knees and go out and campaign in a set of European elections, which they said they wouldn't contest. It was a nightmare scenario for the Conservative Party. As you say, finding candidates will be difficult, finding anyone to knock on doors will be almost impossible. And at the same time, you imagine those elections will become almost a rerun of the 2016 referendum, where you'll have pro-Remain parties like the Liberal Democrats and the new independent group Change UK expect to pick up votes on the Remain side. And then, of course, on the Brexit side, Nigel Farage's new party launched on Friday, the Brexit party, and UKIP still there as well. And the Conservative party is facing a really difficult time. And the days after those elections, you will see a concerted push, I'm sure, to try to remove Theresa May. The question is
1: whether she'll go. Exactly. And one thing that I think is worth noting for those European elections is the Labour Party is actually polling surprisingly well. Maybe they become the repository for general political anger that if you're not highly motivated about the Europe issue, and we should forget that large portions of the British electorate are not motivated by this, and if you just want to send a signal or you see a Labour world viewpoint, you could see Labour doing quite well in those elections because its MEPs are all pro-Remain. And when I've spoken to them, the message they're going to put forward is, Very much. We could be in this for up to five years, that it could be delayed and delayed. We might never leave. And we want to play our full part in the parliament. And whether it's workers' rights or regulations, we do need to be actively involved in that. Alex, just to flip back to Brexit and where this leaves us for a moment, what is going to happen now with the UK's departure? Because it feels like to me the whole thing is just going to be frozen for the moment because it's all down to Westminster and Westminster is still in deadlock. So is the EU just going to sit back and wait and see what happens?
3: Well, I mean, this is what the French and Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, were worried about. They thought if you didn't have the pressure of a short deadline that we'd end up in drift and... You know, we'd be back to the Malthouse Compromise and all sorts of things being discussed in London that were completely implausible, and it would be displacement activity before we reached the cliff edge again, and um, the UK would be back asking for an extension. And that may well play out, but it's quite a big gap six months to kind of sustain in British politics, with this looming over everything, maybe quite hard for Downing Street, for Labour, you'd expect there has to be something done in that period. And what people are thinking about here is, will we see a new prime minister in time for that October decision? Is there any chance of this cross-party deal coming together? And people aren't very... Hopeful about that. So I think it really is about that next extension, and it will be harder than this time because Europe works by compromise. The French president lost this time, but next time, it's certain that the EU will not place Britain's interests above its own unity. And so if there is a big divide, the frustration would have built up even more later this year. And I think that the threshold for another extension is much higher in political terms. So the UK will have to show something has moved in the coming months. Otherwise, I think it could well raise the risk of it ending quite badly.
2: I think the extension of six months is a dangerous period for Theresa May because, as Alex was suggesting there, it takes away the pressure for people to come out of their trenches and actually come to a compromise because if you're a pro-European, you think maybe the tide is changing in your direction and you've got six months to make the case for a second referendum to try to reverse Brexit. On the other hand, if you're a Conservative Eurosceptic, you think, well, hang on a sec, in six months' time, we could have got rid of Theresa May, installed a Eurosceptic leader, possibly Boris Johnson, gone back to Brussels, tried to renegotiate, failed, and then gone to the country for a general election, basically campaigning for Brexit with or without a deal. So neither side, I think, has any incentive, really, to get out of the trenches in the next six
1: months, which makes Theresa May's task of trying to revive her deal in some or before even more difficult. I think just to summarise briefly, the things that could happen next, it really all does come down to Theresa May's leadership now, George, because in that six months, it's not quite enough time to have a second referendum. You might be able to railroad it through Parliament, but it's very, very tight and it would get so disrupted on the way by Eurosceptics in the House of Commons, and the House of Lords. You could have a general election, you could certainly have a Tory leadership contest, but it feels like something's going to have to break in Westminster otherwise we'll be doing exactly what Alex just said that Monsieur Macron is worried about which is just the stalemate continuing and that thing does seem to be Theresa May's leadership because you have those bad elections at that point you would think the normal laws of political gravity will take hold and it will be so clear that she is destroying the Tory party by staying there and not resolving this issue she gets heaved out And then that leads to a new Eurosceptic leader.
2: Yeah, at that point, straight after the European elections, there will be a titanic struggle between the two wings of the Conservative Party with the Eurosceptics trying to remove it immediately so they can get their own candidate in. And those on the other side of the party, the moderate pro-European wing of the party even though many of them are completely fed up with Theresa May think she's lost all authority are so desperate to keep someone like Boris Johnson out of number 10 and the risk of a no-deal exit they will try to keep Theresa May propped up I mean she's already a lame duck prime minister but they will try to keep her going for a little bit longer and I just thought you know that the mood in the House of Commons after Theresa May returned from Brussels was fascinating it was almost like Despite the fact that people were going through the motions of talking about the cross party talks, it was the sort of clutching of straws of the Prime Minister, the idea that MPs can go away for a 10 day Easter break and somehow that will change the dynamic when they came back. People were saying exactly the same thing you'll remember at Christmas time that when people came back, they'd spend a bit of time with their family, talk to constituents, come back in a realistic way. And they frame came back in a
1: hardened mood.
2: And, and a couple of weeks later, they voted by a margin of 230, so vote Theresa May's deal out. So you know straws have been clutched at I'm afraid but it's a difficult time for Theresa May for
1: sure and just very finally briefly Alex one thing we did see from this summer is a realisation of that concern that Theresa May could be heaved out of office and a more Eurosceptic leader could come in George and we wrote about the Boris proofing the Boris lock of this deal because the concern from the EU is that someone like Boris comes in and starts trying to break the EU from within or threatens to go against the UK's commitments and that Did play into the dynamics this week?
3: It did. I mean, some leaders at the summit did raise the fact that, you know, for all the limited trust they had in Theresa May to make sure that Britain wasn't a kind of rogue member state for the period it has left in the union, they don't know whether they can trust the person who comes next. And what you have seen is them bomb-proof their position by making clear that the purpose of this extension is ratification. They've been absolutely clear that this withdrawal agreement won't be reopened and they've tried to be even clearer on the limits of what is even possible on the changes to the political declaration. And I think any leader that comes to replace Theresa May and renegotiate this withdrawal agreement is going to not have an easy time here, I can tell you that. So they are concerned about this. At the same time, they are fed up with dealing with a government who doesn't run and they can negotiate with the prime minister that's the only person they can deal with but they know full well that that's not where the power lies in the uk at the moment so for some of them i think any leadership that has authority might be an upgrade but they realize the risks of where that might actually end up in the end
1: So as we've just been discussing, the end is drawing near for Theresa May. The Prime Minister doesn't look as if she's going to stay in Street for that much longer, although no one is exactly sure when she will be leaving. But whoever comes next is going to face two big challenges, how to solve Brexit, but also how to widen the Tory party's appeal. The Conservatives are increasingly falling out of touch with younger voters, as a new report from the Onward Think Tank outlined this week. So the question for the next Prime Minister is is can they persuade anyone under 50 to ever vote Conservative again? Miranda Green, let's begin with the leadership question here. So... The real thing that we think is going to unlock Brexit is Mrs. May departing, and we've seen yet more posturing this week from the likely successors to the Prime Minister. Many of them have really started the campaigns already with interviews. We saw Liz Truss did a big interview with the Spectator where she said she might bin HS2 and said so the Tories have got to get on board with the. Airbnb living, Uber riding, Deliveroo eating generation. You've seen Matt Hancock saying that the Tory party needs to appear to people who are younger than those who want their winter fuel allowance. And you've had Penny Mordaunt as well saying that the real patriots are the Remainers who've accepted the referendum results. When you put that all together, even though Mrs May is still prime minister, everyone's now looking to life beyond her reign.
4: That's right. So she's sort of a marked woman in that respect. And of course, she has also promised to go when this stage of Brexit is resolved. That could be a while. And she may not get to wait until the moment of her choosing in that way. Because we have not just the round of local elections at which the Conservative Party is predicted to lose a lot of councillors, but also potentially now the European elections. And if we fight them, The pollsters are all saying that both main parties will suffer and there'll be a movement to both the very pro-Brexit fringes and the anti-Brexit fringes with smaller parties taking advantage. So she's in that awful position where the minds of her troops are not now really focused on the big questions. It's all about what's happening in my patch electorally. And, you know, my experience of politics, both inside a party and as a sort of journalistic observer is that this sends everybody mad and they can't really raise their minds to another level. So I think we're going to become very, very distracted by that, not least because of what's been going on in the Tory local associations. I mean, daily, you know, you have reports of people saying that even the office holders in local conservative parties are threatening to vote for Farage's new Brexit party if they get the opportunity to send a message to their own leadership so that kind of feeling of disaffection at the grassroots Tory level is is a sort of burning issue both for May as she tries to cling on a bit longer and also for those who would like to take her job because it'll be a question of how much they're forced to play to the gallery and how much they can actually as you said widen the Tory party's appeal because boy those two things are not the same
1: Robert, let's do a bit of prediction hunting, because I know how much you enjoy doing this, about when Theresa May might go, because this week I came to the conclusion there's roughly sort of three scenarios. One is the spring one, which she goes quite soon, following... The local elections and the European elections. Then there's the summer scenario when she gets the deal through and she fulfills her promise to MPs to go after that, and there's a contest throughout the summer. Then there's the autumn theory, which is that she will get a bit of a bounce in the opinion polls and might try and have a cabinet reshuffle or even do the spending review, which would set out the government spending priorities in the run up to the next election. And then there's the winter scenario, which is that she hangs on, doesn't go, and it comes to December the 12th, and Tory MPs will have another that pop at trying to remove her because that is the year anniversary from the last time they tried and failed. Out of those, or if you have some other theory, what do you think is going to happen? I'm definitely predicting one of those. Um, (laughs) It's also shambolic, you can't be sure, but my instinct
5: would be that it will happen sooner rather than later. The local elections are going to be very, very bad for the Conservatives. If the European elections take place, I think they'll be disastrous for the Conservatives. I think they are a party now in enormous trouble. And they have to begin to lift their eyes and think about how they're going to get this back, because otherwise they are heading for a general election defeat of epic proportions. I don't know when it's coming. None of us know, but we all think it's going to be earlier and nowhere near the full term. So... And the problem is the leadership question, as Miranda was saying, is completely paralysed in the party. Everyone is thinking about that. It's infecting all other thinking about Brexit. And no other policies are getting enacted at all. I mean, who can name the last thing the Conservative government did that wasn't about Brexit? So they're in a terrible, terrible place. They won't begin to get out of it until they change their leader. Though that's only the beginning of the process and not in any kind of panacea in itself.
1: And this comes to the point Miranda was making before, which is the timing does matter because the sooner the contest is, the more it's going to favour the established candidates, the further away it gets, it will favour the upstarts. But what the party wants and what the party should get to win the next election are two very different things. Yeah, I
5: mean, I think it's very clear that... They are not going to be able to go into the next election as the Brexit party, as things stand at the moment. If you look at what happened at the last election, Theresa May significantly increased the share of the Conservative vote, and she did it by killing UKIP. It really is as simple as that. She lost votes in some metropolitan areas, but she got them up to 42-something percent by getting the UKIP vote. You have to assume they're going to lose most of that. You also have to assume they're going to lose a chunk of the competency vote, and then they're going to lose a chunk of the metropolitan vote. So they've got to decide which part they want to get back. The the moment of Brexit is not going to lance the boil, because as we all know, there's stage two to come, whatever place we get to. So... I think they've got to start thinking further down the line. They've got to start thinking about all the other things that are going to get the Conservative voting coalition back together again. And the problem is most of the people who we think are likely to be strong contenders for the Tory leadership are not currently focused on that for exactly the reasons Miranda pointed out. They're focused on taking the hardest position they can take on Brexit in order to maximise their chances of
4: winning. I think also it's this bizarre talent that Nigel Farage has to... Mesmerise the Conservative Party You know the fact that he's back on the scene He's got some funding He's looking kind of fit and up for the fight They'll be horrified by this So whereas Robert Is absolutely right as to where They can go they will probably think they have to compensate for the farage factor and go in the other direction. So it's a real strategic moment electorally for them as to how they take this decision. Also, one thing we haven't touched on yet, of course, is the fact that whoever takes over from May has a good chance, unless they were to lose to a Labour Party or a Labour coalition at an early general election, has a good chance of shaping the second stage of the Brexit negotiations, which is actually way more important than the last two and a half years of discussions we've been in, In because that's where we end up in our relationship with the EU. So, of course, how the leadership contenders set out their stall for that, and whether it's a reasonable, business friendly solution that they're recommending, which would be very much the old Conservative Party that we thought we knew before this, or whether it's a sort of hard line, no deal Brexit that they all feel condemned really to recommend just because of the grassroots who have the say over who becomes the next leader.
5: But I think for all but the most passionately committed Brexiters. Brexit, as far as the Conservative government now goes, is an issue of competence now. It's just actually, do you actually look like a party that can run the country? And at the moment, they don't, and that's a massive massive issue.
1: So this whole debate was symbolised on Tuesday in Westminster when there were two events held by different wings of the Conservative Party. One was held by the Bruise Group, which is the long-term Eurosceptic group, and it featured Andrew Bridgen, Marc Francois and Anne-Marie Morris, who are probably three of the most hardline breaksters in the party where Marc Francois made headlines by saying that if we're trapped in the EU through a long extension, we would behave like perfidious Albion on speed. And he quoted... Tennyson poem at length. And the whole event was slightly bizarre, slightly pointless and completely out of touch with, I think, what anybody thinks the country needs now. And the opposite side of Westminster was an event hosted by Onward, which is a new think tank that was created following the 2017 election to try and widen the party's appeal. And they've released this new report that outlined the challenges facing the Tory coalition. Now, at that event, James Kanagasorium, who's a rising star in Tory polling service. Or said that there is a time bomb underneath the Conservatives Voting Coalition. And at that event you had Penny Morden, Matt Hancock, Tom Tookenhat, who's chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and it was meant to be Michael Gove, but he was busy of trying to fix Brexit. But that report, Robert, did highlight the fact that if the Conservative Party goes in the ERG direction seen by Francois and Bridgen, there's no way it can win an election. The only way it can is to go in this different direction. But is there really the appetite to address these fundamental issues with the Tory voters in the country?
5: Yeah, look, I think the headline... Out of the onward report was that by the next election you 're going to have to be fifty one before you 're more likely to vote conservative than vote labor and I think there was something like eighty three percent of conservative voters are now over forty five so yeah, huge demographic time bomb for the conservative party actually I went through the whole report and I looked at all the numbers and it doesn't have to be anything like as terrifying for the Conservative Party as it could be because the point is that. Brexit isn't the be-all and end-all for these voters. Actually, when you crunch the numbers, what it tells you is that British younger voters in decent numbers are perfectly prepared to vote for a traditional Conservative Party. They want the Conservative Party to be a bit less nasty, a bit more fair. They want it to care much more about the environment. In other words, they want the Conservative Party to look like the party David Cameron was attempting to turn it into. And what that means is that the Conservative Party has to get back to the point of eliminating some of the negatives and accentuating some of the positives younger voters are perfectly happy to vote for lower taxes they want better public services they want a fairer society but they're not looking for enormous socialist revolution the conservatives have got to get better doing is getting rid of all the nasty side of of their image it's what Theresa may of course famously said many many years ago and they've got to look like what we once referred to as compassionate conservatives and i think this is the key issue for them as they go forward Do they want to be dominated by people who look very old fashioned, look like everybody's dad or granddad, who look well-heeled and uncaring with no idea about what life is like for normal people? Or do they want to look like a party that understands the country in which we live? That's the fundamental message from the Onward Report. It isn't that you have to become tremendously woke and politically correct. That's not what this report says at all.
4: So I think this is a very interesting analysis. And Probably the senior Tory politician who has understood this best and for the longest period is Michael Gove. When you look at the way that he's handled himself at the Agriculture and Environment Department, it's all incredibly green and it's all incredibly, you know, we understand modern Britain. There is a sort of paradox at the heart of it, though, because, of course, he as an individual is a leading Brexiter, And I read this week that he has been trotting out a phrase that he's looking forward to using in luring back all these mainstream voters, which is now that we have left the European Union. I'm really sorry, but as a non-Tory, I just think this is cloud cuckoo land. You know, we are not going to be out and beyond Brexit in a way that allows the Tory party to reclaim this mantle of being reasonable, sensible folk, know how to run things. I think your point about grip is absolutely... Crucial to this. This has been a saga of incompetence. And really, I think we're still very much where we were about a year ago, which is that the biggest advantage that the Conservative Party has electorally is still Jeremy Corbyn. And until they've actually got something to present as a positive reason to vote Tory. They're nowhere.
1: But following up on that, Miranda, it's not just the policy element of Brexit. It's the people who are advocating Brexit. Because if you take those ERGers who I mentioned before, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg was a backbench MP for five years who was seen as a bit of an oddity. I remember he was described as David Cameron's worst nightmare when he was first elected. As an MP, but now he's never off the rolling news channels. That's the worst nightmare anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he's never off the rolling news channels, and he is constantly on the front pages, and he symbolizes for many people what the Conservative Party has become. And I think this is the challenge for the next leader because. It is now the Brexit party. We've said this before on this podcast. You know, it was conservative voters, conservative activists, conservative MPs who have fully embodied what Brexit is. They can't get away from that. They have to own it. But it's moving away from the most hardline Brexiters is going to be really, really
4: tough. Really, really tough. And you're quite right. Once upon a time... Jacob Rees-Mogg or Andrew Bridgerton or indeed Marc Francois in all his ridiculousness, these were marginal figures and they would hardly have ever been on the television and they're now on every single day. But it's not just a problem of how to throw off the shackles of the extremists in the parliamentary party who've been holding them hostage. Because look at what's happened at the local level. They have allowed their local associations to be infiltrated by hardliners. I mean, MPs have said to me once a week they get a letter from a reasonable long-term member of the Conservative Association saying, I'm really sorry, of course, I'll continue to vote for you personally, but I can't be a member of this organisation anymore. So in a sense, it's a mirror image of what's happened to Labour even though they're not actually running the front bench, as it were. Those hardliners have a grip in the parliamentary party and they have a grip at the local level too.
5: This is why I think if you were a Conservative Party member, what's happened to Boris Johnson is something of a shame for the party because this was a man who, for a long time, epitomised metropolitan liberal conservatism. And then he went and supported Brexit. And that was a clearly unforgivable crime for lots of Remainers. But even at that point... it didn't have to become irrevocable for him. He could have supported Brexit, gone back to being a more liberal conservative. Clearly, there were political crimes committed during the referendum if you were a Remainer, but you could get past a lot of that. But Boris Johnson, in the years since, has allowed himself to become much more populist, much more hardline. And even though I still think he's probably the front runner to be the next Conservative Party leader, it's much harder for him to pivot back to being the kind of Conservative that he wanted to be six or seven years ago and the kind of Conservative who exactly hits the spot for the kind of things that the Onward Report is talking about, which is you're still fairly right-wing, you're still economically liberal, you still actually believe in the country and patriotism and you do actually favour Opportunities for British workers. These things are all showing the young just as up for that as the old, but you are more in touch with modern life. His problem is can he somehow get back to that? Because that's what the Conservative Party
1: needs somebody like that. And very quickly, I'm going to do a bit of personalities here, Miranda, about the individuals involved. We've just talked about Boris, and I think Robert's entirely right that he's still absolutely the favourite because once this contest formally begins, the personality and the reach of Boris Johnson outclasses everybody else and there is this question about will he get onto the ballot paper but I think you will see the momentum behind Boris builds so quickly outside of parliament that MPs who are wavering will see how much support there is for him and particularly if you get someone like Amber Rudd who you know we've written about is someone who might back Boris Johnson his is de facto deputy prime minister which will try and do what Robert was just suggesting there that Boris speaks to the Brexiters, but Brexiters, of a bit one-nation conservative in his politics. And Amber very much is the progressive wing. You've also got Michael Gove as well, who is someone who is has been seen as the Remainer's Brexiter. He's become the acceptable face of Brexit for many moderate conservatives because he's accepted the deal. He's not gone down the no-deal path. And again, he's a kind of reformist. But I think the most interesting person struck me, who I've been interested in both your thoughts on is Matt Hancock recently, because he is the health secretary. He was very much a George Osborne night under the last government and managed to stay there he was one of the few George Osborne acolytes who didn't get booted out by Theresa May and he's been quite quietly successful first as culture secretary with his Matt Hancock app and then as health secretary where he's played Brexit quite well and at that onward event this week I was struck compared to the other candidates and the other people he did represent something of a breath of fresh air.
4: He's not batty that's quite important (laughs) And he's not weird. That your base and level quite, now? No, that's where we're starting from. I mean, let's be honest about this. I completely hear what both of you say about Boris could be saved by a joint ticket with Amber Rudd. All of this, but neither Boris nor Amber Rudd actually look normal to most of the population. You know, you have to be realistic about it. Matt Hancock is rather good, and he's got this interesting backstory: his dyslexia and all the rest of it. He's quite a sort of John Major type figure, so you can see him coming through the middle like that.
5: Thing these days.
4: Well, it's all relative, isn't it? And the situation we're in helps anybody to sort of look acceptable compared to the front runners. But one of the other people who we've not discussed is Liz Truss, who seems to be selling herself very, very hard as a kind of almost a sort of libertarian ticket where she sort of ignores all of the actual problems that British society has by saying that everybody just wants to be free to use apps to empower themselves. But I think it's quite often not the front runner, as we've said before. So for all that you've said about Boris being the obvious choice, I would caution against making assumptions.
5: I think Matt Hancock I think he is interesting. One of the things that's notable is the officials in the departments where he's worked praise him. That isn't universally true among this cabinet. His officials regard him as a good, decisive minister. He takes the flack when there's flack to be taken. He doesn't hide behind other people. He makes his mind up and gets on with it. He's much younger. People don't know much about him. He's just a competent conservative. When you look at the cabinet, he's one of the ones you look at and think, yes, I understand why you're a cabinet minister. So that's quite a positive thing. I think what's going to happen is when this contest kicks off, there is going to be a proper Brexiter candidate. My guess is it is going to be Boris, though I take Miranda's points absolutely. And then there's going to be another who represents the other wing of the party, the more one nation, more mainstream wing, mainstream in its political sense, rather than mainstream of the Conservative Party nowadays. And that's going to be a fight between the Sajid Javids, the Jeremy Hunts and the Matt Hancocks. And I think Matt Hancock will have an appeal, which is I'm the new generation. I'm not tarnished in the way some of these other people are. I can restore the impression of competence and youth and modernity. And I think he's a good outside bet to make the final two. And then who knows?
1: Well, thankfully, Westminster has gone into recess for the next week. So we'll have a slight breather from the political madness. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more from the FT, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Elliot Kahn. Until next time, thanks for listening.